Hey everyone, it's uh, it's time for another holiday chat, 2020 uh, pandemic edition, maybe I don't know. Uh, I'm joined by Rashad from Dallas. How you doing today, Rashad? Doing pretty well. Are you ready for Christmas? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm not yet, but that's okay. by the time this recording comes out, I will have bought all the gifts. I promise. What uh, what would you like to talk about today? Uh, basically, um, uh a lot of the roll-up strategies that I have seen. Um, so basically, normally when you're buying a business, especially since I'm like younger, I'm 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, um, I'm currently saving up the money to buy a business. Um, and I'm in school for computer science, just in case there's a backup plan. Okay. Um, so one of my first questions was rolling up multiple low-cost businesses under 100, like between 100 to $200,000. They sometimes will have low net profit mm-hmm. or um, businesses into one, like rolling them up into one and see if there was a thing for like able for large growth or would it be better to save up more money and put it towards a more established, larger business? Mm. So <clears throat> I've made I've made videos in the later half of 2020 about things like starting a business while keeping your job and uh, buying business as investments, which have a low, you know, cash flow to owner. Have you seen a lot of those ones? I believe so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the challenge with the smaller, the smallest of the main street businesses is that because businesses are valued on a multiple of sellers, discretionary earnings, that means that the assumption is that the owner receiving that money is in there working full time. So it's, it's essentially the smallest ones. You're really just, you're buying a job basically. And so that might make sense for someone who can't find a job or can't find a job that they want, or they have some kind of barrier to the labor force. Like maybe they've moved from a different country and their credentials aren't recognized, or maybe they have a language barrier, for example, a person like that might buy one of these small businesses so that they can have that income. They're going to go and work there every day. Now, if you bought one of those and then you bought a second one, the challenge would be that out of the cash flow of the second one, you'd have to pay somebody to work there. Uh-huh. And so as you, if you did a roll up and you bought multiple of these, the, the question would be, where would the growth come from? Would it, would you grow the sales by making them all part of the same business? You know, that's a big question. We don't know. Um, sometimes in a, in a, when people buy many businesses and put them together, they start to get efficiencies for things like head office function and purchasing. So maybe you're buying larger quantities of, of your goods and then you're getting a better price from your suppliers. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe you buy three companies that all have a payroll clerk. Now maybe you only need one you know, to, to serve everyone. So it, so there can be a lot of, it depends around that general strategy. My biggest concern would be um, your familiarity in running whatever business it happens to be. Have you, have you made any decisions about what kind of industry you're interested in? Yeah. Um, retail possibly um, because they're normally a lot cheaper starting out. And then I'm trying to grow from there into retail finance, technology, and things like that. Hopefully to start like a sort of kind of like not private equity, but like more of a, an investment firm, if you would say, but we don't manage anyone else's money. 
sort of like a holdings company. So you, you want to have a multitude of businesses that are maybe in different industries. So you have a diversification of your own personal earnings. Yes, of course. That's perfectly summed up. So like, uh, convenience stores buying multiple of those so I my like my dilemma was basically should I buy um, like two two or three convenience stores um, acquire those or put most of that money towards a very a uh, lot larger established business mm. that's that was like what I was doing or nail salons things like that but those aren't as scalable for growth so that uh, that's what I was kind of worried about yeah so so let's take, for example, convenience stores as an example. Um, what my suggestion to you would be is number one, get a job in a convenience store so that you can start to see how it functions. So you're, you're getting paid to learn how the business works. Uh-huh. To see what that particular store is doing, how they run things. You might want to get a job in a chain convenience store and then maybe later go to an independent one. You might want to see how, you know, things change because what you will need to become is you'll need to become an expert on how to properly run a store like that. Yeah. So that when you start looking at them to buy one, you can find one that is making money, but has problems that Uh you know how to fix. Now the challenge in that particular industry is that there's a lot of competition for those stores because it's a simpler kind of business that well, people perceive it to be a simpler kind of business. Let's put it that way. You can make make them very complex. Like you can get into food, you know, a lot of convenience stores will have like quick, you know, self-serve hot dogs and all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, You can certainly make it complex or keep it simple, but because people perceive it to be simple, there are a lot of uh, competing buyers who want to buy that kind of business. And in particular, um, you could have like, like a family or a couple where in order to get that cash flow, maybe the husband and wife are both willing to work full time. And so to that buyer, they may be willing to pay more for the business than you are. And that's, uh-huh. that's the challenge I've consistently seen in, in my own city. Um, back in the eighties, there were these chains of convenience stores. And then as more people moved here from other countries, those, those owners of the chains broke them up and sold them off one at a time for a much higher price than they would have ever gotten if they had sold it as a big business. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now that's not to say that maybe you don't find another kind of business that, that you could focus in on. Um, but yeah, it was like, it was like the problem with technology is that their multiples kind of sell for a lot higher. I think online businesses multiple sell for quite a bit. Um, and also with, uh, I was trying to think about basically, uh, was it like scalable business businesses? I seen you had did a, um, it was a video you had did about the, um, the restoration business um with that um and then you guys started talking about like the market and things like that regarding that so um are those so what type of like just off the top of your head what ideas do you have for like a a scalable business easy well not easy but like um simpler growth or or um, better to expand more than a nail salon yeah so in in 
in my mind, a scalable business is one where um, given the existing facility, you can serve more and more customers by adding uh, like more employees, but not necessarily having to have a bigger space. So Mm -hmm. for example, something like, um, you know, carpet cleaning with truck mounted steam cleaners, like there are businesses like that. They might operate from a place in an industrial park. The more marketing they do, they do the more customers they get. And they always have the ability to add another truck, add another employee as when they grow. So as they grow, they can just keep adding another truck. And of course it's, it's like a climbing a staircase of growth because you have to really make sure that you have enough new business to support the new person. But to me, that's the kind of business that is scalable and you can go and you can set up locations in other towns and cities. If you want to spread geographically, um, the head office function, the person who's buying the advertising, doing the payroll, doing the purchasing, all that oftentimes it doesn't matter if they're doing that to support five people in the field or seven, right? It, it's, uh-huh. it's just such a little bit extra piece of work for that person that, you know, you can keep growing without having to necessarily grow the, the head office overhead. And even if you were to acquire another similar business in another city, you could probably keep the people that do the work and the head office people could be consolidated back in your own head office. Like the one purchaser now could probably be buying for both locations. And that's, that's the classic kind of scalable thing versus um, a business where you have to build out and expand your facilities in order to grow and add more people because then you end up adding to your overall overhead. And then if you have a dip in sales, like if you were in the carpet cleaning business and you added another truck and you added another truck payment and you added another employee and you were making money with them and then sales declined, well, you could lay off the employee. You'd still have the truck payment, but the truck payment is, is a much smaller portion of your overall overhead than if you doubled the size of a restaurant, for example. Yeah, that. And I think that same thing applies with, about the restaurant applies to like convenience stores. Like you have to actually, or nail salons, definitely you have to actually uh, get a different um, actual facility, actual leasing space. Mm-hmm. And one of, one of my other questions is, um, how do I fatten margins in a business efficiently in a way to cut costs in a way that doesn't actually hurt the business? Yeah, so... There's actually a book and I forget the name of the book and it's something about competing with Walmart is in the title. And it was written by a guy, he was somewhere in the States and he owned a hardware store and Walmart moved in nearby and he wanted to survive, right? So he was trying to figure out how do I compete with Walmart? And so some of the strategies that I recall from the book, and it's been like 20 years since I read it, um, were to never carry quite the same thing. So, you know, Walmart might have one brand of item and you carry a different brand. It just makes it harder for people to make direct comparisons, right? And, and so the, the things that you offer, you offer different things than what your direct competitors are offering. So it's harder for people to compare. And you, you look at other ways that you can offer the service that might be more valuable to people. Um, you know, someone who walks into a convenience store to pick up a quart of milk, price is not the most important thing to them. 
or else they would go to a grocery store, right? And so I think that's a really important insight because one of the things that I've noticed is that small independent locally operated convenience stores, for example, to use that example, um, I actually find that their prices can be lower than the chain stores, which is interesting because what I think is occurring is that the owners of those stores are bringing their own consumer mentality into their business thinking, oh, no one would pay that price for this item. Whereas the chain corner stores, they just have a margin formula. They just say, we buy it for this, we market up this percent, that's the price. Realizing that when people stop to get gas for their car and they decide they want the Kit Kat bar, it doesn't matter if it's $1.25 or $1.76. They want it, right? As long as yeah. it's not $5, we're going to buy it. And so it's, a, it's really been a surprise to me just to watch when I go into these big, uh, usually they're gas station chains with convenience stores, you know, you go into them and just to see how the prices of things keep creeping up, 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 it doesn't seem to deter anyone. And, and so I think that improving your margins may be about offering different things and not being afraid to raise prices uh -huh. rather than looking for cuts, you know? Yeah. Not being afraid to, yeah, okay. Yeah, like, you know, the, one of the worst things business owners do is they get stingy with reinvesting in upkeep and the appearance of places. You know, a light bulb burns out and they don't bother replacing it and things like that. That just makes a place look sketchy. And <laughs> as, soon yeah. as, as soon as someone might feel uncomfortable there, well, they're not going to go there. Mm -hmm. and, and so... One of the things I've noticed is that these, you know, and again, we're just using convenience stores as an example, but these big chain convenience stores will bar no expense. They'll have big windows. It's nice and bright in the daytime. At night, when you approach it, you can see inside, you know, there's a lot of illumination. So it makes people feel comfortable and safe, right? Yeah. And, and they walk in there and there are nice displays and the floor is clean and it's a, an inviting, welcoming place. Versus some of the independent corner stores I've seen where it's, you know, there's stuff on the window. They let people put up posters and things and it's older and they haven't replaced the flooring in 20 years. And it's just a little bit sketchier. Well, you know, a lady driving around on her own in a, you know, in a fancy car is less likely to stop at that store than to go to the nicer, more presentable store. And that person is the one who's the least price sensitive. And so that's the person you want to be your customer. And what I think a lot of people have a trouble with when they're operating a business is they keep seeing things from their own point of view and not realizing that their ideal customer's point of view could be very, very different from theirs. Yeah. I didn't think of it that price. Yeah. I never heard of it explained that way. Yeah. She would be probably a lot less price sensitive. Because yeah. down here in Dallas, we got, uh, there's a lot of money down here in Dallas. So there's like certain areas, you know, they might not. So if there's somebody driving like a, a Bentley or something, they're not going to, you know, trip over something that's like $2 or something like that. Yeah. So, sure. yeah. So, yeah, that is a very, very good point. Um, a lot of times with these convenience stores, they do not really look the best. And even with a lot of nail salons, um, here we got a high Vietnamese population here. And so... Um, with the nail salons here, a lot of them aren't really kept up to the 
to um, as good as they should seem and the storefront does not really look as good. And so mm-hmm. I always wonder how do they stay in business for that long? And then you talked about um, how a lot of times, I think a lot of times, a, a lot of businesses aren't really actually making it, but their doors are still like open. They're not actually they're either breaking even or have a full-time job. Because I remember when the coronavirus started, I had listening to one of your books, Smarter Than a Startup. And mm-hmm. I think, was it 10 stupid things that people do when they buy a business? Oh, 21. There's all kinds 21. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, 21. Yeah, it was a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember it was on Audible. I was uh, playing a game while uh, listening to that. It was a real, real good book. Um, but one of my main things is, is like, I don't want to spend so much time on something that's probably not going to net me as much money as what I would like invest in something that's a lot bigger and a lot scalable. So say, for example, like I'm working... I have to work like 10, 15, 20 hours, um, or not even like 60 hour, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks in convenience stores. And they're not netting me that much when I could go towards a, put that larger down payment towards a, a, um, bigger business, have it more established and have more goodwill in that business. Or, but one of my ideas was to buy two or three of them like within a, within a short period of time um, and put finance on both of them and try to brand it and have more of a um, branding towards that, like that convenience store and that nail salon. And so, and then I wanted to apply like, what is that um, technological um, efficiencies in it. So you were, I think you were very big on systems and, and businesses, which I really liked. Um, so uh, that's kind of what I wanted to put into the business since I'm um, into computer science. So it'd be a lot easier to flow. So when I was doing teleperformance calls back in July, I was, um, you would, I would call and then you would hear a lot of these small mom and pop businesses. They don't have like a lot of, um, not even a POS system. Um, they write, still write down a lot of their stuff um, for accounting and checkbooks and things like that. And so it made me wonder if I could go in into a business like that by two, by one or two of them and probably put in a lot of systems, put in certain types of employees and try to expand sales. I think that would probably, that could be pretty successful in the long run. Well, you know, you, you mentioned like nail salons and you talked about convenience stores and it reminds me of a time Five or six years ago, I was doing a presentation in front of a group of new immigrants who were uh, coming into Canada and they were buying businesses. It was part of an immigration program. If they made an investment, they could fast track their uh, residency and and citizenship. And so it was actually most of the people in the room uh, were from Asia. And one of the questions I was asked is, does it make sense to get into the convenience store business? Because Amongst them, they were all new people who had bought these convenience stores. And, and for an individual to buy a convenience store, they're going to be buying an independently owned one because one of these big gas station chains isn't going to sell off one store to someone. Like they're, they have their own business going. They want all their locations. And someone said, you know, is the, is the convenience store business any good? They knew people who were working 60, 70 hours a week and not really making much money. And I said, well, from what I can observe... I think it must be a fantastic business. And then I mentioned one of the local gas chains that we have here in this region 
they were renovating all of their stores and they were putting in bigger windows. They were putting in new floors. They were putting in baking centers so that when you walked in, you could, you could smell fresh bread and cookies. So just those tall cabinet things that uh, Subway restaurants have, and there's really no effort. You put in like it's a frozen stick of dough and it, so many minutes in the machine and it's ready to go. And so they were making baguettes and rolls and cookies in these baking centers and people would walk into the store to pay for their gas and they would smell that. And you can just imagine, they're like, yeah, I want some of that, right? And so they were, they were investing a ton of money into all of this new kind of stuff to create an, a retail experience, right? And so I said to this group of entrepreneurs, I said, that's a multi-million dollar, probably billion dollar enterprise, that gas chain. And they've hired the best retail consultants and they're spending a bunch of money to make their stores bigger, brighter, and smell nicer by making fresh bread. There's no way they would be doing all that if they weren't making money in the convenience store business. And then I, I said to these guys, what you have to ask yourself is what do people see as being different between your stores and that store? And this is where people can suffer from these biases like, you know, they imagine that their customers are like them. And if and a lot of business people, you know, are frugal people, price is important. And so if I'm a frugal guy and I don't want to waste money, quote unquote, then I tend to think that my customers are the same way and they don't want to spend a lot of money on the candy bar. So I keep my prices low. And then as a result, I don't have the money to reinvest. Meanwhile, the gas station is taking sticks of frozen dough that cost 20 cents and selling them for $4. Right? Yeah, I feel <laughs> so, so they're they're making big fat margins where they're going to pay for that baking center rather quickly because they're creating <clears throat> a place where people want to go when they because people have a choice when they're driving around they can choose where they go that they, they like it it's comfortable and so um, sometimes it's a cultural bias where you know people value different things because of the place and the, they grew up and the people they were around. And so it's hard to step out of your own skin and, and challenge some of those ideas. Um, I think though that this is where the opportunity in entrepreneurship is because one person can see an opportunity that another person can't. You know, you mentioned systems in small businesses and how some people just don't have these tools and, and systems in place. Um, one of the things that I advise people, uh, like in my, in my business buyer adventure group coaching program, I, I've said many times, look for a business that has problems, but is still making money because you can buy that business. And from day one, you're making money. And if you know how to fix those problems, of course, that's where you're going to experience the growth. Definitely. And I was, um, I was, uh, that, that is correct. Cause, um, our point of view is different from the customers. Cause you know, if I'm running a nail salon, I was like, who would pay this much money for some nails? And you know, yeah. I'm a guy. So, <laughs> so I was like, how would that work? So, um, and you know, these women do pay a lot of money for that. Um, a lot of times um, I'm black. So in black culture, a lot of times women pay for hair weaves and they get real expensive, like hundred, hundred dollars, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars for, you know, hair installments. So I'm hey. like, wow. I saw good hair. You <laughs> oh, see that yeah. movie? Yeah, with Chris uh, Chris Rock. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was a whole new world to me. I, cause I didn't know any of that stuff. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So I, I understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and for those consumers, for those, for those ladies, like that's an important thing. Just like, you know, some guys are going to want to spend a lot of money on their car or whatever. Right. And you know, it's, it's funny because I think we tend to believe that people will spend on necessities more so than wants. I don't think that's true. I think people will find a way to, to find the money to spend on something they really want. Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. Now, you talked about cash flow and the size of business earlier, and I'd like to circle back to that. Yeah. Because one of the sort of rules of thumb that that exists is that the the seller's discretionary earnings the total cash flow available to an owner operator can be anywhere between 0 up to about 20% of revenue for a business with sales under a million so you could have a business with sales of 500 grand where the owner is working there full time and maybe they're bringing home 100,000 for themselves that would be 20% of of sales but once a business grows beyond a million of revenue, it's really hard for an owner to take home more than 10%. And, and that's not a hard and fast rule and that magical line moves depending on what industry you're in. But the idea that I want to get across is that as a business gets bigger, you eventually get to the point where you start to have to introduce middle management. So in a mom and pop restaurant, you could have you know, a family that owns it and a family member might be there all the time being the manager and you've got a couple of part-time staff and they run the place. But if you go to like a big chain restaurant, like Olive Garden, right? There, there's so many people working that mm -hmm. they have a general manager, but then they also have maybe a kitchen manager and a front of the house manager. So that kitchen manager and the front of the house manager would be examples of middle management because there's just so many people working that one person can't kind of run the whole thing. And that's, that's what causes the total amount in the pocket of the owner to shrink as the business gets bigger. And there's, uh, you will sometimes hear business people talk about, especially people who've tried to grow and then they've retreated. You know, there was a roofer I once knew who said that he had grown to four crews, but he had such a hard time keeping an eye on what was going on and he didn't want to pay for another foreman. And so his solution was to go back to only running two crews of guys. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that hurdle is very real because you can grow to a certain point when you have to add that middle manager, all of a sudden your profits are gone until you grow, you know, another bunch. And so depending on the industry you choose, you want to learn as much as you can about that industry and learn mm -hmm. about the figures and learn about, you know, there's um, an association called RMA risk management associate associates mm -hmm. and big downtown metropolitan libraries often have a subscription to RMA data. And so you can go and you can look up industries. Um, you can look up certain businesses by industry and they will aggregate the, um, P&L and balance sheet information so that you can see, for example, um, 
retail stores, they'll have like from zero to 350,000 in revenue. And then maybe from 350 to a million and a million to 2 million. And it'll show you the average P and L of those businesses. And so you can kind of get an idea of what it might be like to own one of those businesses in those different revenue categories. And so oftentimes it comes back to figuring out what that target industry is going to be. So you can start educating yourself and become an expert on that particular kind of business, go researching stuff like the RMA data, and then it makes you a more informed buyer. So, so maybe you might come to the realization, if I'm going to buy a convenience store, it's got to have revenues between 800,000 and 1.5 million or something like that. And it helps you narrow in on what you're looking for. Yeah. And I think, you actually drop a lot of good websites. Um, I think I remember seeing you with one of your videos. I seen you going to Accounting Coach, which is incredibly helpful. Um, the Accounting Coach website, and there was another one, the um, BRB Business Guide, I believe. Um, oh yeah, there's um, yeah, BRG Business Reference Guide. Yeah, BRG. Yeah, BRG is, Reference Guide is. Um, it's a great guide uh, for people in the brokerage industry. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's made up of feedback from people in business brokerage. So there's a lot of great stuff in there. Um, a lot of rules of thumb. Um, you have to be a little bit careful about some of the stuff in there sometimes, but I find a lot of the expert questions by category and stuff will be really great. And also my next question um i wanted to talk about like deal flow mm -hmm. so let's say i let's say if i get big enough um can i hire people to um look for you know um m a deals for me well you know it's funny because um i released a video in december where i talked with a guy who used to work at a private equity group he's now looking for a business of a certain kind and he's already hired as an associate who is a person who's studying finance at a university to help with doing work. Um, there's all kinds of way you can leverage other people depending on what you want them to do. So for example, I know business buyers who've hired virtual assistants just to go and use different online search tools to build a list saying, you know, I need help finding, I want a list created of all the corner stores in Texas, for example. That's a lot of work, you know, going through things like yellow page listings and, and then sorting out which ones are chain stores versus which ones are independent. And then maybe you want to do some research and try to find the owner's name on some of those, which means maybe looking for, you know, um, state department, uh, databases of business registration and stuff. Sometimes you can use that kind of resource to find the owner's name or at least the director's name if it's a corporation or the members of an LLC, for example. And uh, so how do you, the state, um, what website, because that is, geez, that's a lot of good information. Uh, the state? Every, every state has something different, but usually in every state and province and different jurisdictions, there's some place where you can look up to see where the different businesses are registered. So if I registered an LLC in Texas, that becomes a matter of public record. 
So if I start doing business under that name, someone should needs to be able to go and see if it really exists or not. Right. Yeah. So, so do a Google search for something like Texas company registry or Texas registry of corporations or LLCs or what have you. And you'll find some kind of state agency or department. The question then is what will they give you and is it free or not? So here where I live, I can look up any company, but it costs $3 to get a report, which is not a lot of money, but if you want to look up a hundred of them, it starts to add up. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, and so when I buy that report, I can find out who the registered directors are of the business and nine times out of 10, if it's a small business, there's only one director. Guess who that is? It's the, it's the owner, right? Yeah. And, and usually they have a, a legal address for service. So that can be important if you want to, for example, maybe contact them at home versus wow, yeah. the business. So you just have to do a little bit of internet sleuthing and you'll be able to figure it out for Texas. So basically what, uh, what, uh, to grow and to become wealthy and this. I know this seems like kind of like a general question, um, kind of even crazy question, but like to become wealthy and to, and buying a business. Um, have you seen people like start off from zero and then become wealthy or at least well off enough from buying businesses or multiple businesses or um, roll up strategy or acquisition business acquisition? So to be honest, I've never, seen anyone start from zero and go buy a bunch of businesses. The normal path that somebody takes is they start working. They develop an expertise in a certain field. They grow into some kind of management position in that industry or in that field. And then they eventually, you know, and they live below their means and they accumulate some money. They maybe build equity in a home. They start saving money And eventually they get to the point where they say, I want more and I want to be a business owner. And I realize how risky it is to start one. So I think I'm going to buy one. And then they analyze what they know. And so they'll either go and try to buy a business within that field that they, they are an expert in where they've been working, or they try to figure out what fields they could get into where their expertise could be applicable. So sometimes you can transfer skills from one industry to another. Right. Uh And, so it, the, the reason why people get into business, a lot of the time it's to satisfy some sort of creative urge. They want to create, they want to be the master of their own destiny, their own time. Sometimes it's lifestyle driven. I, I've worked with a lot of people over the years who wanted to buy a business where they wouldn't actually earn less than what they were doing in the present because they were maybe, you know, in big law firms where they were working 90 hours a week for hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but they were going to kill themselves early through with that kind of work load. Right. And so they wanted something where they could have more of a work-life balance. And so there's a lot of different motivations about why people want to do it. Um, The, when you, want to go down this path of being an entrepreneur, the most important thing I feel is to actually develop the skills of how to run and manage a business. Then you get, you know, you solidify your foundation. You, you pay down debts and you accumulate cash 
you get a stronger and stronger base. And then as opportunities come along, you're the one that's in the power position because you don't need to do deals. If you just keep doing what you're doing, you're going to continue to get in a stronger and stronger position. You're going to continue to pay down your debts and save money. But when the right opportunity comes along, then you can take advantage of things like borrowing money from the bank because you can show the banker, look, I run a successful business and now I want to buy this one. And I can show you my track record. I can show you the track record of the business I'm acquiring. I can show you there's going to be more than enough cash flow to pay the loan. Bankers love those kinds of customers. Right? Uh-huh. What, where people get into trouble is when they try to skip steps and the banker says no. So they figure out some other crazy fandangled way to get money to buy the business and they end up paying higher finance charges or they end up with multiple credit facilities where the payment requirements on all those debts is too high and they, they, the cash flow of the business can't support it. And then they end up, you know, insolvent. Like I, I have seen so many people crash and burn because they're so eager to do a deal that they, all they're thinking about is how can I get this deal done so I can become the owner of this business without then thinking what happens on day two when they own the business and now they have to service all this debt that they've taken on or, you know, that the worst thing people do is put their last nickel into a deal and then something breaks or something happens or a big customer is lost or what have you. Everything was planned upon the idea that it was going to operate perfectly and things rarely do. It's, you know, it's always the thing you're not expecting that gets you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, so this is why I look at it like climbing a hill or climbing a mountain. You, you, you have to go the whole way. You can't skip parts. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, there are people your age who have bought businesses. There's several in my audience I've had correspondence with people I've talked with. Um, and a lot of them will say that they made a bunch of mistakes because of their lack of experience or whatnot, but they live through it. You know, they built that experience. They were able to overcome whatever it was. So you seen like um, people in their early twenties, mid twenties buy business. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a guy who was a guest speaker in my adventure group. Um, he bought three different businesses over the course of a couple of years, just like what uh-huh. you're talking about. Um, thinking he could apply a whole bunch of efficiencies and whatnot. Um, and then he got involved with a partner who provided some of the capital for the third location. And then he got into partnership issues and then they got into operational issues and then he wasn't making as much money as he had planned. And then he decided to sell and he was able to kind of get out with what he had put in. So it never ended up being as lucrative as he ever thought. Although he would probably tell you it's the best thing he ever did because he learned so much. And and this is why I am a fan of young people getting into business in some respect, because you're at a point in your life where, you know, you're probably not married. You probably don't have a family. You don't have any kids, right? No house to pay for, right? So right now in your life, the the risk of failure is the lowest it's going to be. So if you have... If you're working in, did you say you're finished up in school with IT or are you still working towards that? 
Um, computer science, yes, like software programming. Yeah, I'm finishing up towards that, like two years left. Okay. But um, but I'm trying to do buy a business, but I'm not trying to get the software programming, um, like and then buy a business. I'm trying to buy a business and use that as a like a backup. Okay, so so then you, to me, if you're going to school, then what you're talking about is within the realm of of what they call side hustles, right? Yeah. There are all kinds of things you can get involved with as a side hustle that don't cost a lot of money, even if you start something as a side hustle to give you an opportunity to make sales and have to figure out how you're going to deliver for customers and, and solve the everyday problems of business. All of those experiences are going to make you more capable when you get your hands on a big business. Yeah. So what is that, um, what was I saying? So you were talking about, let me see. Um, so um, I remember you, um, I, I don't know where it was. I, I think um, you said one of the mistakes that um, people that buy business do is they try to um, pay off their debt too fast mm-hmm. when they should be having, um, what is it, some um, cash reserves. So why is that? Why do you think, why do you want, um, why do you think that way? Why do you think that people should not be paying off their debt? Because, you know, mm-hmm. oh, well, paying off their debt as fast. Because, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, hurrying up and getting that debt out of there so you can, you know, yeah. um, have some more money to yourself. Because, because debt is rarely got a revolving door on it. So here's what I mean by that is when you buy a business, if you go get an SBA loan, you might be able to get a loan at, 7% interest, let's say for example. Okay. Uh-huh. And so you buy the business, you're paying the loan a 7% interest and you did really well one year. Let's say you put extra money on the loan and then something bad happened in the business and you needed money. You can't go back to the bank and say, I want to get some of those payments back. Yeah. I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> what, they'll, what they'll do though, is they'll sign you up for a new credit card oh, yeah. at 21% interest. No. Right. And so, and and so this is, this is, you know, you, you pay for long lived assets over a long period of time. And if you can get what they call senior debt, which is bank debt, which is often secured against collateral, that's always at the lowest interest rates. Uh You, you don't necessarily want to pay that off fast. You, if you have a credit card debt, you want to get that rid get rid of that as soon as you can, because it's expensive. Right. Yeah. And so if you're in a business and you're paying on a loan at the bank at 7% interest and you have a good year, in my books, you take your extra profit from that year and you put it into like a business savings account so that when you reach that hiccup or that bad event occurs, you don't have to go to the bank and ask for a credit card. You've got the cash, right? Now, if the good years continue to compound and you have one good year after another and your cash reserves keep growing and growing and growing, at a certain point, you might feel comfortable taking part of that money and paying off the loan, especially if you can pay it off entirely because now you've freed up all the cash flow. Oh, wow. Right? And, you know, that, that's, that's my opinion. Just because I've seen people pay things off before, um, there's a really early video on my YouTube channel and it's got the bro- broke bushwhacker in the, in the title. Uh And it's the story of someone who went through this exact thing. 
he got to the, he had a machine that would clear the shrubs and little trees out of the ditches along country roads and expensive piece of equipment. And he had a really good year one year and he paid off his loan and he had, he had like a lease from the manufacturer, very low rate, just like Mm -hmm. car loans. You know, sometimes the dealers will advertise 1% or 0%. So he had one of those good deals. He paid off that loan and then he needed to borrow money to later on at a much higher rate. I mean, he never should have paid off the financing. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus crazy. So, um, what was another question I had? Um, I'm trying to think it was the, Have you ever heard of, um, oh, it's 40, it's 40 to 60% down payment good on a business. Um, cause I read in this book, um, buy then build. Have you ever, it's by Walker devil. I think I, I I've heard of the book, but I haven't read it. Very good book. Um, I think it's, I heard it on audible and, um, I think I remember, um, I want to put, um, like a larger down payment on the book because, you know, since I'm younger, um, I don't know how it'd be getting an SBA loan or talking to a bank because I'm trying to I'm trying to target some of these smaller banks here because mm-hmm. you know there's a multitude of banks besides Chase Banks BOA Chase Bank BOA and Wells Fargo so there's smaller banks where I could talk to maybe some bankers or things like that and if I come in there with a cash flow forecast and that's another course of yours I was going to buy and um, basically talk like I know what I'm going to do. I think you said something about that. Um, I think I most likely will be taken seriously. And, you know, I probably have to talk to a lot of them. But one of the main things I wanted to do is um, he said something about the safety, a safety net, basically, like putting a safe um, down payment because you don't want to over leverage it by by like 90% or 99% leverage or something like that. 40 to 60% or between 30 to 40%, he said, was um, a safe so you'll have an, a safe um, down payment to have enough for to pay yourself and for debt service. So um, do you think that's... So I want you to, to imagine this, okay? Mm-hmm. So the... the I, I know exactly what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. The more equity on the balance sheet of a company, and, and so I'm just going to describe a balance sheet for you really quickly here is let's mm-hmm. say you own a business, it's got $100,000 worth of assets and you buy that company and you put 20% down, which means you, you put down 20 and you borrowed 80, okay? So that's, that's a 20% down payment. Now, if you have $40,000 and you put down 40, what it means is that company is gonna have a more stable base because there's more equity in the company. Mm-hmm. The problem is what we just spoke about is, well, what happens if something goes wrong, right? Uh-huh. So if you had $40,000 and you were going to buy a $100,000 business, yeah. what, what I would rather see for real financial resiliency is I'd rather see you put 20% down, borrow 80, and then take the other 20 grand and put it into a bank account. Again, what we're doing is we're trying to maximize the senior debt, which has the lowest cost. Mm-hmm. And if something happens, we are now not forced to have to run out potentially and borrow money at a higher cost. 
Wow, I didn't think of it that way. So what ends up ha- this is what ends up happening is you put that 20 grand into a bank account in the business. Now what happens is the assets grow from 100 to 120 uh-huh. because now there's more assets. Your money's in there now. On the other side, we still have an $80,000 debt. The money you put down, your equity is you know, 20,000. And then the difference on the asset side ends up in the equity section too. So you still have 40,000 of equity but you're more liquid. Oh, yeah. Right? That 20,000 in cash gives you options, more choices. And what you want to have when you're operating a business is you want to have the most available choices as possible whenever something happens that you weren't counting on. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good idea. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. I did not think of that at all. The, the, you know, there's a guy who I had on my podcast named Rocky Lalvani. He he's a profit first um, oh, yeah. advisor. Yeah, did you hear that one? He yeah. he has a mantra. He says on his podcast. I, I listened to a few episodes of his. He says revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is king. And so so what he means by that is you want to make sure you make profit. You shouldn't do anything you can just to grow your sales number. It's got to be profitable sales. But that last part, cash is king, is something that a lot of people say, you know, cash is king because ultimately almost every problem in business can be solved with cash. And we want to be resourceful. We want to figure out ways to do things without using our cash. But at the end of the day, if we have that option open to us, uh-huh. it means that it's up to us to make the decision. And I, I would rather have the burden of making decisions than having circumstances make decisions for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, uh, another question. So, basically, um, have you ever, I'm pretty sure you've heard of it. It was a movie in the 80s. Um, not the, it's not the Wolf of Wall Street. It was um, basically called Wall Street uh, with Gordon Gecko, mm-hmm. played by Michael Douglas. So, yeah. um, <laughs> corporate writer. So, um, so, have you ever heard of Paul Singer? No. From Elliott Management. Okay, so he's a dude from New York who basically um, buys shares in companies. He did it to um, Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops. I think it was yeah Cabela's. So he ended up buying. I think he ended up um, buying one of them and then causing them to merge, mm-hmm. so he could raise the stock price and then sell them off. Basically, basically doing whatever he can to either um, make a profit off of these um, very very large companies. So I was wondering, is there a way? Um, this might sound, not, it might sound a little bad, but like to get rid of competition in, um, over, in an oversaturated market, such as like nail salons and stuff like that. So um, is there a way to do something like that on that level? Probably, probably not, I'm guessing, on this uh, main street level, like a well, corporate writer level. Have you ever seen anybody do that? I'll, I'll, tell you the, I'll tell you the difference is that it takes a great deal of investment, time, effort, on the part of a lot of people to build a a retail chain like Bass Pro or Cabela's. Uh And when you're on main street, like those nail salons, you know, Uh barrier to entry to open up a nail salon is quite low. Yeah. You know, you need the supplies and some of those special tables and a, and a place that suitably can be decorated to be inviting. Right. Yeah. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why you see so many of these businesses because it's, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot for somebody to be able to open it up. And so, you know, you could buy up 10 of them and close eight of them 
Well, those landlords are going to go looking for tenants and they might find some people that want to open new ones again. Yeah. And so you're just going to end up with, with new competition. There has to be some kind of barrier that prevents somebody from doing that. So, so for example, in, in your Bass Pro and Cabela's example, you know, now here where I live, there used to be one of each and then they closed the Cabela's and they moved all the stock over to the Bass Pro location. Well, who's going to come in and open an 80,000 square foot outdoors store now? Right? Like yeah. for somebody to catch up and build another chain like that, it's, it's, it, if someone could, it would just take them 10 years. Yeah. Right. So, so Bass Pro, the new Bass Pro Cabela's merged entity is going to enjoy a good period of time where there won't be anything else like them. And eventually new competitors may come along and other types of stores might decide to sell more of that kind of stuff, you know, and of course online. Yeah. So, so even though they've eliminated one of their biggest competitors, it doesn't mean they're free to charge whatever they want. They still live in a competitive market. They, they have to be thinking about what their customers want. The, um, so I, I think it's a little bit different. Like right now, a lot of small businesses that, you know, you know, it, businesses that were at the bottom of big office towers in downtown locations, you know, pe- businesses that used to survive on the office workers coming and going right now with the pandemic, a lot of those offices are empty. I, you know, a lot of those businesses that used to rely on that traffic, they've closed and those people are gone. Once things go back to normal at some point in the future, someone else is going to grab that location. They're going to open up a similar kind of business because all those people got to have lunch somewhere. Yeah. That's, and that's probably the biggest thing you said something about one of your, one of my favorite videos from you, um, richest and the niches or however you say it. Um, Oh, the rich, yeah, the riches in the niches. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, how somebody was basically selling some type of medical, it was, it was, it was, um, amazing kind of cause it's like, it was something so specific and unique to where I think you was talking about something with trains and things like that. And then there was people who sold something in the medical field, um, some type of medical supplier or something like that. I believe um, they sold this stuff, but they were getting rich while nobody knew, but mm-hmm. the barrier of entry was so hard. And what you talked about in the smarter than a startup was, which I really, really liked was, and this was something I was going to do basically. And then you just reaffirmed it. And that's smarter than a startup book. So basically, I was going to buy these businesses to try to try to start start um, to try to start larger enterprises. So um, I basically need it's kind of like these main street businesses are stepping stones, so mm-hmm. I can build up a larger holdings company. Because there's a dude called Guillermo Perales. He owns a bunch of franchises. So um, he owns like I think he's on his thousandth store. So he's oh, wow. part of Sun Holdings. So that's very big. So I wanted to do something like that, but I wanted to do, I wanted to be a holdings company, but have certain departments dedicated to real estate, venture capitalism, things like that. And that's also pretty risky. And um, investing in larger companies and larger shares of companies, kind of how Warren Buffett does, where he um, invested, I think, in Geico. He, um, Berkshire Hathaway has a very, very large holding in, um, in that company. So that's something I wanted to do, but, um, so let me put a little idea in your head. 
Yeah. Whatever you decide to get into for initially for a business, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a part of that end plan. Yeah. A lot of people will, they'll get into business, they'll start something or buy something, and then they'll personally associate with that. And they'll, they'll feel like that business sort of represents them. Look at these things like assets. So for mm-hmm. example, you could get very good at buying convenience stores, putting in systems and organization, increasing mm-hmm. the margins, increasing the profit, the value of the store could you know increase and then maybe you sell it. Yeah. Or you put five or six of them together as a group and as it grows in value and produces cash flow for you, then you go looking for another opportunity and then you sell that group of businesses. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, what you start with doesn't have to be a part of what you finish with. And what, what was that guest speaker's name that you mentioned earlier? Do you know his name? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what you're referring to. Uh, that guest speaker, that, that guy who bought those three businesses and had partnership agreement issues, then operational oh, issues. Yeah, he, he was in the adventure group and it was actually in an anonymous call. Oh, okay. Because he didn't want people reaching out to him. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and any other, so um, last question. So any other books that you recommend for um, buying a business and trying to um, basically not buy a job, basically? Um, best you know, buy a business. Here, here's... <sighs> there are a lot of books out there about buying businesses. Um, And if you want to talk about buying very small businesses Uh in a creative way, Uh uh, there is a book called the ACE method by ACE Chapman. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard it. It's a good book. I don't know about any of his other stuff. I've never done any of his programs or anything like that, but I read the book and I liked it. He actually, teaches people not to use the bank as a whole different method. The, the thing I would caution you about when it comes to books on buying business is they need to be fairly current back in the seventies and eighties, the rules at the bank were different. Yeah. And so you can find a lot of books that were written in that period, which explain methods that actually that just don't work anymore. Yeah. What, what the bankers are looking for has changed. The, the other thing to be careful of is that there are people out there today who are teaching and promoting methods that come from that period, claiming that they still work when they don't. One of, the, one of them that I came across over the last year is a guy who wrote a book and uh, there's, it's a, in the video, uh, Zero Down Gurus Exposed, I had a guest on from Texas and we talked about this in, in that book we talked about in the video that the author of the book explained how he bought another business with no money without any money of his own. But what he didn't accurately explain is that he already owned a company at the time. And so he was in the book, as he was describing what he was doing, I understood that he was leveraging the balance sheet of his existing business in order to secure financing on the acquisition. Yeah. The way he presents it in the book makes it sound like anybody could have done what he did. And that's not true. Yeah. 
And the, the whole reason he presents it that way is because he wants to get people excited that they can buy a business even if they're broke so he can sell them a program. Yeah, definitely. And I was the person who, I, was, I have a behind the mastermind at yahoo.com. I was the person who started that small business myths thing um, to ask the question about it. Now it's some really good um, topics you guys talked about. Oh, so great. that's what I was. That's what I had asked about because um, you said something that doesn't take seven years and things like that. But I really appreciate the info you've been providing, and I will be calling you probably sometime um, January or um, book a call on clarity probably sometime in January or February next year. But thank you very much. Awesome, man! It was good to it was good to meet you and talk with you, and I wish you the best of luck. And um, you know. I've been interested in business ever since I was like 11, 12 years old, always trying to figure out a way to make money. And I know that there, you know, for some people, we're just bred for this where we want to do it and we want to be (laughs) creative. We want to make things happen. And um, it's about building skills, doing things, even if they result in a negative outcome and we, we feel kind of bad about it. It, it, it changes you. I, I remember when I, I used to own apartment buildings for a little while. And I remember the day I got a call from a tenant and he said, Hey Dave, how's it going? And I said, great. And he said, I have three inches of water in my living room. <laughs> and my stomach just seized up. I was like panicked in that moment. I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Well, I had insurance. Yeah. I mean, it was all taken care of, but I'd never been in that position before. And so I called my insurance guy and he told me what to do and workers came over and they, it was all fixed eventually. But next time I had someone call me about something crazy like that, my stomach didn't tighten up. Yeah. I grew from it. And, and that kind of thing is going to happen when you get into business. I mean, you get into business, you know, what's going to happen one day. Right. You're going to have to fire someone. Yeah. You're going to have to fire someone and you're going to know that they won't have a way to pay the rent. But you still got to do it because your responsibility is making sure the business continues and makes money and is successful. And and you have to let that person be responsible for what they're taking care of. And and like there's all kinds of tough things that happen when you get into business. But as you do them, you grow. And, and it makes you more prepared for the bigger thing that's going to come along down the line. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cause you're like the only legit dude like, <laughs> that I can find <laughs> doing this. So when I first seen your videos, it was like a relief. And then you opened me up to so much different stuff. So I've been watching you for a while. And so um, a lot of my knowledge comes from your books and you and your videos. So I'm really, really um, excited to buy your course um, because you're probably like the only person that I know on YouTube that's trying to teach people how to buy a business. Everyone else wants to do, you know, real estate. Uh, I was the one who did that real estate versus buying a business question too in your comments. Um, okay. Everybody wants to do a, a, other stuff like um, just a bunch of um, motivational stuff. And I feel like you get to the real nitty gritty things about it. And um, everybody wants to do that startup culture. And I feel like you want to do the unsexy, type things the the things that's like it's not a lot of glory but it's like it's a lot of um, honor into it so i really like it man oh well i appreciate that very much thank you um i'm 
I, I, I just don't want to see people do bad deals. I, yeah. <laughs> I've seen too many people take money that they've spent decades saving and, and do a bad deal and end up losing out. And I just want to make sure that it's out there for them to find. Yeah. You know? yeah, definitely. Thank you, man. Keep doing what you're doing. All right. Well, Merry Christmas, Rashad. And, uh, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. You too. Merry Christmas. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.